now to what we call the period of the single kingdom or the single kingdom of Judah. Uh, we have only uh, a few chapters really to traverse now. This evening we, we are not going to take a lot, we're only going to take four chapters because we want to dwell for a while upon the most important crisis in the history of Judah. You remember that the scripture in the um, second division of the two books of Kings, the period of the divided kingdom, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, um, spent quite a lot of time on the reign of Ahab because his reign was, as it were, vital to the whole um, purpose uh, of God as far as Israel went. You remember that it was just at that point of crisis that two of the greatest prophets uh, arrived on the scene around that period. First Elijah, followed by Elisha. Now we have come to the last great division. It's a period uh, that covers 135 years. Not a very long period, but this 135 years is perhaps more than any other period in Scripture crowded with prophetic ministry. Many, if not most, if you look at the board, of the great prophets all ministered, lived and ministered during this short period, from Isaiah and Micah right through to later Daniel and Ezekiel. It sees all of them within the, it, its orbit. And I think we need to remember that. And furthermore, within this very short period of eight reigns, only two kings of the eight were good kings. The rest were evil. That is, if you add up their years, there were 54 years of good kingship. And there were 82 years of bad kingship. This period is particularly instructive in a variety of ways. We find within it the two greatest reformations or revivals of the whole history of Judah. You see the little blue patches there that mark revivals or reformations? Whilst in Asa and Jehoshaphat's day it seems to be a very long reformation, it was a very, very superficial one, really. In Hezekiah's day and later Josiah's day, we find the two greatest reformations recorded in Scripture. They were quite deep and their influence spiritually is lasting, although uh, as far as the people went, their influence was not very um, far-reaching. It very, very quickly um, disappeared. For instance, take um, Hezekiah. You find that in Hezekiah's reign a tremendous reformation is affected by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Yet, Hezekiah 
is immediately followed by the most evil of all the kings of Judah, a man whose name is abhorred even to this day by the rabbis, Manasseh. In his 55 years, he more than undid the work of Hezekiah. He set the country on a path which even the reformation of the Josiah could not in any way divert it. And then I think we have to take great note that although in Hezekiah's reign and in Josiah's reign, these two men, Hezekiah and Josiah, was a very real reformation that was more radical than any other reformation in the history either of Israel or Judah, yet in both cases, immediately the king died, immediately his reign ended, uh, the, the whole country um, turned again to far, far greater evil than it had previously. In other words, each period of um, reformation was succeeded by a very terrible period of rapid decline and disintegration. The latter, in the latter case, it ended in exile and captivity. So we have the rather short, sad history of the single kingdom of Judah. The other ten tribes, or approximately ten tribes, have vanished now off the face of history. They've gone. We're left now with the little tribe of Judah. Judah, Benjamin, and possibly quite a number of different ones from the other tribes, and Levi. This little group left, this remnant, as Isaiah calls them continually in his prophecies, this little remnant of the Lord. Yet even this remnant, in spite of the terrible judgment that they had seen, even this remnant itself has got to be purged that out of a remnant there should come a remnant. Perhaps that's one of the most terrible, terrible facts in biblical history. The terrible testimony to the nature, uh, to our nature. It will not die. Cannot die. Through all the successive dealings of God, through the successive experiences that it passes, in spite of all the obvious nature of God's instruction, yet there it is as evil as ever, as ready to rebel as ever, as ready to run into wayward paths as ever in spite of all the instructions. You would have thought that with all the ministry of Micah, who not only ministered in the kingdom of Judah, but in Israel as well, foretelling the terrible destruction, and believe me, the destruction of Samaria was not child's play. The most abominable things happened. If any of you want to read something which will give you nightmares for these, then you want to read something of the of the end of Samaria, how all the male male members of the, of, of the city were stripped naked and flayed alive till they died. And so it went on. That's just perhaps the better side of it. The most terrible cruelty practiced against all. It wasn't child's play. And, it, and Judah watched all that. In the reign of Hezekiah, she saw the whole thing enacted before her eyes. She saw the judgment of God fall upon the people in the most terrible,
terrible way can only be described by the wrath of God upon an evil and adulterous generation. And even in spite of the fact that she saw all that, and in spite of the fact that God was dealing with her as a people, yet at the end of it, you find that the, the children of, Ish, of Judah are as prone to evil and as ready to run in the ways of the nation as ever Israel was. Indeed, in the end, the Lord's verdict on Judah is simply, she is worse than the nation that I drove out before her. So it's not exactly a happy record, although in it we find two very, very beautiful jewels. And that is the reign of Hezekiah, followed a little later by the reign, 57 years later, by the reign of Josiah. What we need to note is this, that although we see, and we don't think we ought to learn something from this, although the scripture speaks of reformation, and although it is quite obvious that the reformation was a genuine one in both cases, it was genuine and real and sincere, it went quite deep in its own way, yet the thing we have to note is this, that really it did not affect all the people deeply. It is quite obvious that the Reformation <coughs> was really confined to a number of people. Now in that lies a very big secret. I think we could say that the Reformation of Hezekiah and the Reformation of Josiah was more like salt. You know how the Lord Jesus described salt? as the great counteracting force in corruption. So this reformation of Hezekiah was as if the Lord had got, as it were, so many grains of salt in a terribly corrupt situation, which was checking the whole downward path, counteracting the whole evil influence, for a while causing a halt, and purifying the whole atmosphere, as it were, holding everything for a while before God. Only later, Immediately that influence is removed. Only the real condition of the people manifests itself. It would seem, you see, that Hezekiah, Isaiah, Micah, Joah, and one or two others, uh, Eliakim and one or two others, were, were men who knew God and loved God. And because of that, they were the salt of the earth, as it were, as far as Judah was concerned. You remember in Isaiah's prophecies, he he speaks very severely and harshly of Shebna. And it is therefore quite obvious that there were quite a number amongst the king's counselors even who were not faithful men. They were not true and genuinely faithful to the Lord. This is a point we have to remember. And this is why in Josiah's day, immediately Josiah dies at a very young age, the whole nation is given over to the most terrible corruption. I say this because otherwise you get the world when they read these passages laughing at it. Because they cannot understand how a good king can affect such an amazing reformation to be followed by an evil son who turns everything exactly in, uh, inversely and then um, the, the whole nation follows as it were wholeheartedly in his way. How can that be if there's been a real uh, reformation. The point is really that it was in a number 
quite a, a large number of people in Hezekiah's day, but it did not deeply affect all. It was something which in many ways was superficial in the masses, but it was very real in quite a number of leaders. I believe that this is the very thing that is happening in our own day and generation. If God were given just a group of people that he could put into key positions, who were, as it were, the salt of the earth, you would find many situations held, many situations checked, a purifying atmosphere, immediately, immediately those people are taken, you'll find the whole thing will collapse uh, instantaneously. This is exactly what is going to happen when in the very last day the church is taken. When it's gone, the sordid atmosphere that will instantaneously break out all over the place will just be an eloquent testimony, though a terrible one, to the fact that man himself is indescribably evil. Well, we must learn those simple things because uh, when you remember these few facts, uh, I think it will perhaps bring it more home to you. Um, take, for instance, Hezekiah. Do you know the house of God was only roughly twice mm. or three times at the very most the size of this room? That was the holy place and the holiest place of all. Only about three times the size of this room. It took them 16 days to get the rubbish out of that room. Working from early morning to late at night. 16 days it took all the Levites getting the rubbish out of that room. And they weren't lazy either. Now it wasn't the court. It expressly said it was not the court. For the very first thing they had to do was to, to open the doors. And when they got in, what does this mean? It simply means that the Lord's house being used as, as a lumber bin. <coughs> it just being used as store, for storage purposes. It was the court that was used, if you remember. Do you remember how Ahaz changed the altar in the court, put the Lord's altar on the north, and put his own altar that he copied from Assyria in the centre, and then offered all his sacrifices. He closed the doors of the Lord's house, and then on top of the roof of the Lord's house, he put all kinds of little altars to the, to the uh, stars, the hosts of heaven, the zodiac signs. Uh, um, he practised that worship of the heavenly host. Well, it took them 16 days to clear the rubbish out before they could get down to putting the place right and opening it and having the gatherings once more uh, uh, properly um, carried out a little bit. Then again, you must remember this. Do you know that King Josiah discovered the book of Deuteronomy? He discovered the book of the law, which we believe to be, if not holy, or part of our book of Deuteronomy. He discovered it. And do you know that when he discovered it amongst the rubbish in the holiest place, that's where they discovered it, he was so utterly surprised that he asked it to be read to him. And when it was read to him, he burst into tears and caused a halt to everything and asked them to go to Hulda, the prophetess, and inquire of her about this book of the law. What is it, he said? Josiah, the king, an educated, cultured man, had to ask what the book of, what the book of Deuteronomy was and what it was about and whether it was really right. Now this makes us realize how the, 
the people of God had fallen. You see, it wasn't just conditions that were a little bit compromised, they were conditions that were appalling. The people had completely forgotten the Lord. Jehovah, whom they worshipped, was an altogether different God. He was one of these nature gods, he was one of these idols of the nations. And consequently, when you read of Josiah <laughs> opening the doors of the Lord's house, sometimes because it's our scriptures, we just gloss over that. We don't think what that means. It, it, it says it was great emphasis. He opened the doors of the Lord's house. It was a tremendous thing to do, to open the doors of the Lord's house. It was just simply that uh, the place had been sealed off, closed off. It was just filthy and dirty and... Now that just makes you wish. You see what has happened? Of course, some of you may well think that that's what's happening today. See? What's happening today? You've got thousands of Christians, but the house of God, its doors are sealed. It's like a lumber room. You won't even find hardly the church as a heading in many cases, let alone in many other aspects of Christian life. It's something that's just not mentioned, not evidently thought of as very important. It's a kind of lumber room where we just sort of talk rather happily about all the little things. Either we're all very loosely one in Christ, or uh, you evidently choose your church like you choose your grocery. You go to the one you like best. Suits you best. That kind of attitude that just relegates it all to, to something that's just cheap and something that's just uh, not very important. Uh, you just... Well, that's the theme in which we find uh, the, this period set. Now, if you look at 1, uh, 2 Kings and chapter 18, you will note from verse 1 to verse 12 <coughs> that it expressly tells us that Hezekiah, there was none like him before, and none since. His reign was unique since the reign of David. It was the greatest reformation ever carried out in the period of Judah's history, in the kingdom period. Just you look at the record. Now I want you to, to note a very important thing. You might ask yourself a question about this, which we'll learn, uh, we shall learn together another lesson. Why does King dwell upon the Assyrian offensive and invasion of Judah, and very, uh, and hardly tells us anything about uh, the Reformation? It dismisses it in a very few words. Yet Chronicles does the exact opposite. It tells us the most remarkable things. It tells us about a tremendous Passover. Okay. It tells us exactly how they cleared the rubbish out from the temple, exactly what they did inside, how the singing was restored, how the song of the Lord began, it says. The song of the Lord began. It's a lovely phrase. Think about it. The song of the Lord began. How everything, as it were, all started up again. Yet in Kings, that's not here. Now why? Why does it dwell upon the Assyrian offensive? Because kings 
You remember the key to king is kingship and the throne. And it's simply telling us this, that every assault upon the house of God or upon the people of God is an assault upon God's king and upon, upon God's throne. It brings the throne into view. Yet have I set my king upon my own head of life. This is the conflict that king all the way through is setting. This tremendous conflict that rages around God's king and God's throne. Well, that's why in kings we're not told such a lot about the Reformation. We are told just very simply in those first 12 verses that Hezekiah smashed the pillars, he cut down the groves, the Asherah, the Asherim, he closed down the high places, he was the first king ever to close down all the high places of the land. Now that's a tremendous mark in his favour. You remember the Holy Spirit always puts his finger upon the high places. Hezekiah closed down every high place in Judah and he went beyond Judah. If you read in Chronicles, you find that all those that he invited to come to the Passover from the northern tribe, when they went back, they broke in pieces the golden calf at Bethlehem. In other words, they undid even the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Even the high places of the north, which were now devastated by the Assyrians, were broken down because of the influence of the, this little group who were faithful to the Lord in Jerusalem. And he did another remarkable thing. He says even, even the scripture puts this in, even, he even broke in pieces Moses' brazen serpent. And he called it Nehushtan, which means a piece of brass. Now that doesn't seem quite the thing to do with a holy relic, does it? But you see, the people were worshipping this holy relic. They were evidently burning incense in front of it. It had now come to them to be very much like a graven image, something they, they worshipped, something they felt there was peculiar power in. Hezekiah went so far, the Lord had done such a deep work in his heart, that every sentimental link with tradition and history was smashed. He even was prepared to take Moses' brazen serpent and break it in pieces and to call it a piece of brass. Actually, it's a pun, a question, either a serpent or a piece of brass. So we find that this is all a key to the spirit uh, of Hezekiah. He did more than that. He might shock some people. He not only destroyed the high places, he desecrated them. He did things upon them and to them that desecrated them in the eyes of everyone so that they would not be able to worship there again. Now that just shows the spirit of this man. He hadn't got the, the fanatical zeal, the natural fanatical zeal of Jesus. His was the zeal of the Lord's house, which had eaten him up. There was something that empowered him, something that inflamed him. And something which was that kept him in balance before the Lord would not allow him to stop until he had, he had dealt thoroughly with this whole situation that was uh, like a cancer uh, in the nation. 
Well, there we are. On the positive side, it wasn't merely that he pulled up and broke <laughs> down and destroyed, but on the positive side, it says he claimed home to the Lord. It says he trusted the Lord all the days of his life. There was something about Hezekiah that was not like about any other king since David. Indeed, all the time the Lord referred him back to David. He, as it were, compared Hezekiah with David. Hezekiah, oh, there was something about Hezekiah that was absolutely of the same spirit as his great, great grandfather. It was because the Holy Spirit had done the same kind of work. I believe that one day when we get to glory there will be a family likeness about us all, even with Abraham. You wait. You wait. When you get to glory, you won't find Abraham to be such a stranger as you think. There will be a family likeness about him. And Isaac and Jacob. They'll find all those, they'll be just, they won't be distant patriarchs that we think of, that we tremble at the disciples, but we'll just be one who'll find work. If that person come to Halford House, we would have been absolutely at home. That may make you amuse you, but that is so. That is absolutely so. It's so all the way through, down to the line, God dealing with all his people with a family life. Something that just means they belong to each other. And so there, I say, there's something very, very wonderful about the positive spirit of Hezekiah. He was a man, it says, who wholly gave himself to the Lord. And the Lord was therefore committed wholly to Hezekiah. Now, we shall see that Hezekiah had some very real failings. But the Lord was committed to Hezekiah as he was committed to no other king before him. The Lord just gave himself to him. Here was a spirit. Here was an attitude. Here was something that loved the Lord, even though it was a weak, there were weaknesses about it. It loved the Lord, and it gave the Lord his rightful place. Now I want you to notice a few things about the reign of Hezekiah. Uh, just simply five things I've noted down, I would like you to note. The first is that much of what happened in this Reformation was being actually performed at the very time that the tragedy in Israel was being enacted. Never underrate the value of that. In other words, at the same time that in Judah and Jerusalem a tremendous reformation was underway, in Samaria, there was awful carnage was taking place. And we are told, we understand from the Talmud and from Josephus, that the refugees were pouring in from the north. Many brought the uh, chronicles of the kings of Israel. They brought the archives, the, the royal archives with them. They brought the precious treasures that recorded what Elijah had said and what Elisha had said. They very carefully fled with them, the faithful in the land, fled from Israel to Judah. It must have been uh, an awe-inspiring sight to see day after day the refugees pouring in from the north with the most terrible stories of the carnage and evil that was overtaking uh, the land. Especially as at the Passover, they had laughed Hezekiah to scorn. When he sent messengers throughout the northern kings, they come to Jerusalem to, hold, to celebrate the Passover. Many had laughed him to scorn. Now they were dead or in captivity. We must never forget that. That had a very great influence at, in Hezekiah's reign. 
because the people saw that what the prophets had said had actually come to pass. And then the second thing I want you to note, and this is a very wonderful thing, is the influence of Isaiah and Micah. In both periods of Reformation, there were two prophets particularly. In and Josiah, it was Zephaniah and, and, um, and Jeremiah. In uh, uh, Hezekiah, it was Isaiah and Micah. You know, these two men are entirely different. Isaiah was a courtier. He was a very cultured man. He was a very educated man. As far as we can make out, he was a rather poetic man, a delicate type of man, but a man of very, very deep, deep feeling. When God burnt his lips with that coal from off the altar, he did something which broke him, burnt him, and purified him, so that his constitution and temperament were utterly, utterly under the hand of God from that day forth. And so we get the prophecies of Isaiah, nothing like them in the whole scripture, for their, their absolutely unbelievable flight into the heavens. Such language, such beauty, such graphic way you can describe. And yet by his side, as it were, though he wasn't always by his side, was Micah. Micah was the roughest man you could imagine. Evidently he was almost wild. Uh, as far as appearance went. He was a shepherd, he just wore skin, he was rough, he was a country bumpkin. He could hardly speak the language of the courtiers of Jerusalem. And yet, Michael had his tremendous part to play in the reign of Hezekiah. So if you read the prophecies about, of Michael with all their allusions, allusions to country scenes and country habits and customs, and if you read also Isaiah in the light of all this, you'll get some idea of the influence of these men. They had seen Isaiah's day, great prosperity and corruption. Then they saw Ahaz, that evil man, the father of Hezekiah, and all the evil that took place in the reign of Ahaz. And then their ministry, as it were, came to its culmination in the reign of Hezekiah. They saw this tremendous reformation. That's something I think we need to take very great account of. You know, in every period of real reformation, in any way, there's been fellowship. And here you've got these different folks with their different backgrounds, with different uh, temperaments, blended together in one great movement of the Spirit of God. I do think that you ought to read, if you can, the prophecy of Isaiah, rather a lot, but ought to read them and give you a great understanding of the way of Hezekiah. Um, you know, it was in this reign that Isaiah said, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord of you? It was such a time as this that uh, Isaiah knew that in spite of the Reformation, there was that in the people which just didn't understand. Indeed, tradition tells us that Isaiah was marked later by being sawn asunder. The terrible end to a great man. Today, well, that's always the way, isn't it? That God made. I think we should mark that, mark the way in which these prophets did undoubtedly deeply influence the reign of Hezekiah. 
Then another thing I want you to note, which may interest many of you, particularly with unsaved families, and I hope it doesn't put fear into those of you with children, uh, that Hezekiah is a most remarkable man in the sense that he had the worst king of Judah as his father, and the worst king of Judah, uh, the very worst, as his son. This good man is in between the two most evil kings of Judah. Now, go away and think about it. I, I was, there's no explanation for it. Why, Josiah's, uh, why Hezekiah's son should be so utterly evil is something that I think we just have to question ourselves. What exactly is obviously not passed from father to son. That's quite clear. Uh, there's something there we can think about. And then another question I would like to ask you, where do you think Hezekiah's change of heart took place? Have you ever thought of it? What happened? Was it his mother? Certainly wasn't his father. Who to whom can, can we honestly say that Hezekiah, humanly speaking, owed his conversion as such? Well, if you would like to turn to two scriptures that I think you'll find very interesting, one is Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah 26, verse 18 and 19. Micah the Morishtite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be ploughed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become a come heap, and the mountain of the house is the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favour of the Lord, and the Lord repented him of the evil which he pronounced against them? Thus should we commit great evil against our own souls. Now this is an altogether new angle upon the life of Hezekiah, because it suggests that the Lord had spoken in judgment at the beginning of the reign of Hezekiah, and that when Micah came into the court and spoke and it must have been a shock to the king to see this country man uh, come. Evidently, some of the councils thought it would be wiser to have the man executed. And this very incident saved Jeremiah's life, because he was in exactly the same predicament. They were going to execute Jeremiah. Then if you turn back to two chronicles, bearing that scripture in mind, two chronicles, 29 and 36. We read this. This is about the great Passover at the very beginning of the Reformation. Hezekiah rejoiced in all the people because of that which God had prepared for the people, for the thing was done suddenly. Now I wonder whether that's the key to the conversion of Hezekiah. It might it would seem almost as if Hezekiah was going to go the way of his father when he, when the word of the Lord came to him as a young man. And instead of rebelling and refusing the word of the Lord, he humbled himself before the Lord. And the result was the greatest reformation in the history of Judah. I think that's something that we should bear in mind. And then again, one other point that may interest many of you, it's a technical point, 
But Hezekiah's reign was one of the greatest periods of literary activity in the whole history of the children of Israel. In his reign, we believe, um, Proverbs were copied, the Proverbs were copied and compiled. We believe that the, the books, uh, the five books of the Psalms, actually reached their final, more or less their final, at least the four books, first four books, uh, their more final uh, setting and order. The Songs of the Degrees, you know those lovely little sets of that little miniature Psalter from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 were written, we believe, ten of them we believe were written by Hezekiah because they're called the Songs of the Degrees or the Steps, which we shall see in a moment. Um, there are fifteen little Psalms in that Psalter which may well, though the rabbis tell us anyway, were a product of the men of Hezekiah. It appeared of tremendous literary activity, particularly because of Isaiah, um, who uh, wrote much of his uh, message down, and consequently there was a great activity to compile things and collect things together, and as it were, formulate things, and put them in more decent order. In actual fact, the rabbis believed that the Song of Solomon Ecclesiastes, um, as well as Proverbs and Psalms, as well as Isaiah, uh, were due to the literary activity in the reign of Hezekiah. Well, then we come to this that takes most of this, these chapters up in uh, Two Kings, from 18 uh, to um, 19, it is this great Assyrian offensive. We must understand one or two things, because it's not all <coughs> completely clear as you read it. A little earlier, in the first 12 verses of chapter 18, we have already been told that Hezekiah rebelled against Assyria. Uh, Judah was a tributary state. Uh, it was dependent, a dependent vassal state uh, to Assyria. But at the beginning of Hezekiah's reign, they broke free. And uh, they paid very bitterly for it. Um, Sennacherib brought up a very large army and surrounded Jerusalem. He took a, quite a number of cities captive in Judah. And the only way that Hezekiah could get out of it was by um, paying or agreeing to an exceedingly large fine and um, a yearly tribute uh, which was imposed upon them by the king of Assyria, by Sennacherib and his forces. This meant that Hezekiah had to more or less give all the gold and the silver of the Lord's house as well as his own treasuries away. It says in the word here that he even had to strip the gold off from the, from the doorposts of the Lord's house in order to pay. It evidently must have been a very, very heavy fine and tribute indeed. It was this that so grieved Isaiah. And if you want to read about it, you'll find it in Isaiah 22, when the people, instead of mourning and crying and bewailing, rejoiced. They were so glad that the armies were called off that it says they flew off and they drank wine and they, and they said let us eat and drink for tomorrow uh, we die 
And it was this that so grieved and distressed Isaiah that uh, he, he spoke very, very, very strongly and said, this thing will never be forgiven until you die. In that way, Hezekiah bought off what would have been the complete destruction of Jerusalem. But if you read on uh, in these verses, in chapter 18, uh, from verse 13, you read on to verse 17, you suddenly find, and this is the only explanation for it, that Sennacherib decides, now that he's got the fine money and the tribute money, to um, lay siege to Jerusalem. He'd got the money, he had, as it were, called off his uh, campaign against Jerusalem. Now he deals treacherously with Hezekiah. And he sends these three men. The Tartan was the commander-in-chief of the army, a very good name. Um, the the Rabsaris was a high military officer. And the Rabshaka uh, was the head of the civil service. These three men were sent to quite a large uh, army um, to demand that Hezekiah um, completely submit. Now they knew very well that Hezekiah had no more money to give. The people had to strip themselves. The house of the Lord was stripped. The king's treasurers were stripped. There was nothing left. They knew that it could only mean one thing. And that was that if they would either be all destroyed or they would they would put themselves entirely into the hands of the king of Assyria for deportation. That is why uh, the Rabshaka makes no bones about it. He tries to make deportation very, very um, attractive. He says, if you'll only all come out from the city walls and not listen to Hezekiah, then you'll all be able to be happy until um, plans are made and put into operation for deporting the whole lot of you to a very nice country a long way off. You'll be very, very happy there and all the rest of it. It's, it's interesting that when Sennacherib un undertakes his second great campaign against Jerusalem, he uses methods which I think nearly all of us have some time or other known. We've all known them corporately, if we haven't known them individually. And I think it's there that we learn some of our greatest lessons. I don't know whether you've ever known the enemy come to you and assault you. The way out is never to come to terms with the enemy. Never. This was the thing that distressed Isaiah. You see, if you come to terms with the enemy, as many of us very foolishly do in our offices or at home or elsewhere, we compromise, we think, well, it's the easiest way out. Then we find we're the poorer for it. We're not only the poorer, but we haven't got anything to meet the next attack. We can't buy off the next attack. The next attack, we are absolutely laid open to the enemy. There's no way out when the enemy comes again. And the enemy always comes back. Um, you can never, you can never, as it were, satisfy Satan. He's too hungry. He will come for something and he will give him something and you think you've bought him off. But he'll be back and he'll be back for more. And then you think you've bought him off again but he'll be back for more until in the end he devours you. That's why the scripture always speaks of him as one who always seeks to devour. He will devour everything 
bit by bit, all together. But his plan is to devour us entirely in the finish. So, you see, this attack on uh, on Hezekiah is not really so uh, uh, foolish or so distant from our, us as we might think. There are one or two other things we ought to note. They're again technical. I've told you about the three who led the attack. I always feel the devil has big sounding uh, names in his front line of attack. Uh, whenever, especially corporately, there are always signs, uh, there's a lot, a lot uh, attached to it. I remember once reading a little tiny um, article about Gashman. I expect many of you read Gashman for it. There's always a big name, there's always a name attached to anything that's said. You know so-and-so has said, or I've got it on the highest authority, or I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that such and such and such and such and such and such. So the, the enemy always comes with his uh, big names and his big words and his big claims. The enemy is a great bluffer. That's why he's called a liar. And that is why he's called a deceiver. He never tells the truth. He only ever tells part of the truth. Now that is why when um, uh, Sennacherib launched this challenge, it was partly based on truth. Why did he keep on angling about Egypt? Because he knew that in the back of many of the people's minds was Egypt. They thought, well, perhaps Egypt will come to our help at the last moment. There's a new king of Ethiopia who's a very strong man. Perhaps he will get here in time and, and save us. So, um, you see, the devil's very clever. First of all, he'll get us to try to sort of get into an alliance with worldly things and worldly people, and then he will taunt us with the very alliance that he's achieved. He's forced us into it. He will come and he will be very cruel about the alliances he's put us into. I don't know if any of you have ever known such a thing. You've been, you've been forced by the enemy out of faith in the Lord into something that isn't absolutely pure and clean and, and open before the Lord. And then the enemy comes and he taunts you and he, as it were, flings it uh, down before you. He tries to uh, make out that uh, uh, you're caught, you're absolutely caught. Very interesting thing that the Rabshakeh spoke Hebrew. This was a very big shock to the cabinet ministers of Hezekiah. Uh, they didn't like it. <laughs> Aramaic was the diplomatic language of the day and they asked if they would kindly speak in the diplomatic language of the day. It wasn't done to address the king uh, in, the, in his own tongue. But their plan was a very clever one. Their plan wasn't to come to terms with Hezekiah at all. It was to drive a very big wedge between Hezekiah and his people. If they had only been able to do in a little <coughs> section, just a little section that would have come and opened the gate, a little section that would have just played the traitor, they would have won the day. So their plan was to speak as loudly as you possibly can so that everyone on the houses built on the wall can hear what's happening and they'll tell everyone else. And so very, very loudly they spoke um, about these different things. It's very interesting, isn't it? The way, first of all, have you ever known an attack like this? We have again, corporately, this kind of method. You know what you're doing? The altars that you've cut down, the groves that you've smashed, the high places that you've um, 
uh, end gate. You see, you actually grieve the Lord. Sennacherib is just simply saying, you don't listen to this newfangled man with his newfangled notions. His idea about cutting down all those altars, those high places, those groves, he's grieved the Lord. And do you know the Lord's told me to come up to this land and to destroy it? Now that's the very method. Whenever the Lord has any people who are out in the clear with himself and are moving on into, as it were, into new things, you'll always have the little voice that cries that you're doing wrong. You can't break with traditions like that. You can't cut those things out like that. You can't speak like that. You can't behave like that. The Lord will leave you. These are the voices that are always raised in every new move of the Spirit of God, whether it was from the very beginning, Luther's day, or Fox's day, or Wesley's day, or Darby's day, whatever day it's been. It's always been the same. You can't. You can't. And so, you see, Sennacherib's plan was a very, very clever one. Smash their confidence. Smash their confidence in leadership. Smash their confidence in the Lord. Make them think that we also are the instrument. There's truth in that. Now, there's truth in that. Assyria was the instrument of the Lord. And later on, the Lord to Isaiah said, Do you not know that I raised you up to ruin cities? And to ravage them, the Lord himself said that. So you see, Satan is taking little grains of truth and using them for his own ends. And later on, he comes right out into the open and says, Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Come on. Now the people's reaction is a very, very blessed one, and one that I think we should all take account of. They were silent. When in doubt, say nothing. Never, never speak with the enemy. Do you know that many of us are, are always caught out on this simple, little, almost trite method of Satan to get us talking? Oh, he loves people who talk. They will only talk. If they will sit down at the table and parley with him, if they will only start exchanging epithets, they'll only get into a slanging match with him. He's quite happy. Doesn't mind. Doesn't mind at all. Anything like that, as long as they don't keep silent. Satan hates the silent people. Because silence at times can be the most eloquent and loud testimony to faith. It's when we come down to talking with the enemy, or querying the remarks of the enemy, or entertaining the thoughts of the enemy, and sometimes the enemy comes as a minister of righteousness and an angel of light. Sometimes I'm afraid he takes the old nature in each one of us and comes at one another through each other. And we only have to get down to talking it and fighting it and parling with it and we're caught. Silence is the way it is. We resist the devil, not by talking, but by facing the and they resisted in this silent way because the king had told them, answer him, not a word. But I want you to note their reaction. It's very wonderful. 
it displayed utter dependence upon the Lord. They were so weak. Why didn't they answer him? Because they had no confidence in that man. They knew that the parley with him wouldn't do anything, wouldn't put him off, wouldn't stop him. They were so weak. They were made weak. They were afflicted people. They couldn't fight. They couldn't talk. They couldn't criticize. All they could do was rend their clothes and put on sackcloth. That shows dependence upon the Lord. Utter, utter dependence upon the Lord. Whenever the Lord's doing a great thing for himself, he always has an afflicted people. He will get an afflicted people by a variety of ways and means, but he will always have an afflicted people. They will be people who, when things happen, they don't know what to do, but fall on their faces before the Lord. This is the thing the Lord's been teaching me about Moses. Every time those, I can only call them at times wretched people, moaned and groaned, they didn't like this, and they were given it. Something more, a change of diet. Then they didn't like then they had no water. Then they wanted to go back to Egypt. Then they were tired of this. Then they didn't like Moses. Then and so on. But you know, Moses never, never came to the place where he argued and parlayed. You almost get tired of it when it keeps on saying that Moses and Aaron fell upon their faces before the Lord. That was the only way, the only way they could, as it were, find relief in a situation. This was exactly what Hezekiah did. It says he went into the house of the Lord. He rent his own clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he went to the house of the Lord. Now whenever the enemy comes for you, the secret of everything is not to go out against them, not to try and, as it were, hit the enemy. How do you resist the devil? By going into the house of the Lord. By silence. By pressing further into fellowship by getting more deeply related with your brothers and sisters. That's the way that you're always the way through, the way of deliverance. If only Hezekiah had come out on the walls and started talking with these three high-ranking officials of Sennacherib's cabinet and army, he would have been lost. But he went. And he wept his way into the house of the Lord. He was so weak. You see, all his silver and gold had gone. He couldn't buy them off. He was an afflicted man. He hadn't even got his wealth to rely upon now. He had nothing. He hadn't even got a son to his name. He had nothing. He could only go into the house of the Lord. Well, there we are. First it's dependence upon the Lord. Silence. Then it's dependence upon the Lord. Then it's getting into the house of the Lord. And then it's the word of the Lord. Now, if you want a word from the Lord about any given situation, and if you are coming into right relationship with the Lord's purpose, the only way you will ever get his word is by being right with your brothers and sisters. Now, if you go elsewhere, it will not be the same. You can go to chapels, you can go to religious organizations, and the Lord will speak to you directly, quite rightly, directly, whatever happens around you. But once you come onto church ground, the moment you come onto church ground, God deals with you as members of a household. He deals with you as living stones related. And therefore all the principles of the house come in, even if you don't understand them. They're all opposite. And so you see, where do we find the word of the Lord? 
It might come directly to you. It may not come through someone else. It may come directly to you, but it will come to you as you are rightly related to your brothers and sisters. So, dear Hezekiah, in the heart of the house of God, sent his <coughs> brothers, as it were, his, the senior priests and the others, he sent them to inquire of Isaiah. And the message came back and said, you're not going to hear. You're not to hear. You're going to be all right. And that very night, something happened, and the high officials vanished with their army, because they heard the king of Assyria had gone out, had, had, had moved his camp uh, for some real uh, conflict somewhere. But, and here again, never think the enemies called off all his assault when you have a day or two of quiet and rest. A letter came, and I might say sometimes that letters are often the method of the enemy. I sometimes feel that what some people can't say publicly and openly or to person says they have to put in black and white on paper. And so this time uh, the enemy sends a rather nastily worded letter. It's right out in the open this time. It just simply says, do you really think the Lord's going to keep you? What's he done for all the other lands all round about? They've all gone. So you'd better come to terms straight away and don't think because I've, I've called off the army from your front door but that means I'm not coming back because I'm coming back very swiftly and it will wipe you out. Hezekiah had not become, uh, as it were, <coughs> proud or arrogant. Neither was he careless. It is he rent his clothes again, he went into the house of the Lord and he took the letter and he spread it out before the Lord. It was as if he was saying, Now, Lord, Here's the evidence in black and white. See what he says. He has, he has, as it were, blasphemed the name of the living God. Now, Lord, do something about it. If you ever get a letter like that, just you do the same thing. I've had one or two in my time, years past, I've always spread them out before the Lord. Don't ask them. Never answer it. Just hold it before the Lord and get the Lord to do the answer. Oh well. You know what's happened? The Lord gives a very full answer to Isaiah. Without any Isaiah being asked, Isaiah comes right in and says, This is exactly what the Lord feels about this situation. Don't you? And then the tidings came to Jerusalem. A hundred and eighty-five thousand died. Now there's a very strange but interesting legend, an Egyptian legend, that it was mice that ate through the bowstrings of the army. I think that's a little bit far-fetched probably. But it is very highly probable that it was field mice because it is not only a legend of Egypt. And it may well have been that they put the plague to the camp. Whatever it was, the, 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 the army of Assyria were absolutely laid waste. And Sennacherib returned immediately a very humiliated man 
to Nineveh. And some years later, he was murdered by his own two sons as he was worshipping in the house of his God. So the Lord's word came absolutely true. But there's something there, I think, for us to be greatly encouraged about um, over the word of the Lord. Sometimes evil men seem to be the strongest that, that in the strongest position that it's possible to be. It seems they wield power which is absolutely almost almighty. It will seem that they can utter the most terrible threats. They can taunt us. They can blaspheme. They can hold us in derision. They can sneer at us. They can just, as it were, seemingly play cat and mouse with us. But then suddenly there comes a day when the Lord's word is utterly fulfilled. And you know the terrible thing sometimes to watch the Lord's word being fulfilled in a situation. Oh, how the mills of God grind slow but exceeding sure. Once they grind, nothing on earth can stop them. They just grind on to the end. And so you have here some very, very wonderful lessons uh, for all of us to learn. The last part of the of uh, Hezekiah's life, uh, he is ill. I don't think it was a mistake that he asked the Lord. He was very afraid of dying. Some people think it's a big mistake of Hezekiah's to ask, but I don't think so. The Lord's word to him was, set thy house in order, or thou shalt die and not live. Hezekiah was a very human person. He turned himself over, it says, and looked at the wall and wept. He didn't want anyone to see him weeping. So he looked at the wall and he went. And then he, he let his whole heart come out to the Lord. Isaiah had left him. I think Isaiah was probably very moved. And he left him. But it says he was only in the middle court of the king's house when the Lord said to him, Isaiah, turn round, Isaiah, go back. I have something to say. When Isaiah came back, the Lord, as it were, contradicted his first word. He said to Hezekiah, the Lord has heard you. Is going to add 15 days, 15 years to your life. And you know how he asked, uh, Isaiah said, get a little cake of figs and put it on the tumour. He put it on the tumour. And Hezekiah recovered. In three days he was worshipping in the house of the Lord. But he asked for a sign. And the sign that he asked for was that on the sundial, it was Ahaz's sundial, it was a Babylonian innovation, there were steps going down from the king's house and a pillar. And as the sun struck the pillar, it cast a shadow down the steps. From the king's house, he could probably see those steps in the shadow. He could tell the time as the sun went down, so the shadow came up the steps, you see. And uh, he asked that it should go back ten steps and it went back ten steps ten degrees of ten steps this was the sign of the Lord and I don't really think there's any more satisfying uh, key to the problem of the fifteen uh, psalms of songs of the steps or the degrees uh, really than that the little collection of Hezekiah ten probably by himself, and five added, if you look, you'll find that is so, uh, the 15 years added to his life, and the 10 that he himself gave. However, 
you know what happened. This incident did not follow on the rest. That is the important point to remember. It was in these days he was sick. And if you look very carefully, you'll find in chapter 18, verse 13, it was in the 14th year of Hezekiah, if you look at chapter 18, verse 2, he only reigned 29 years. And then we're told the Lord added 15 years to his life. So it must have been at the, just before Sennacherib attacked Jerusalem that um, he fell so sick. And it was then that he did a very, very foolish thing, which I think afterwards, in God's dealings with him, he learned. And that was he received an embassy from Merodach Baladan, king of Babylon. It was supposed to be because he was so glad to hear that Hezekiah recovered, but in actual fact he wanted to make an alliance with Hezekiah against Assyria. And you remember what Hezekiah did? He showed him all his treasures. And Isaiah came to Hezekiah and he said, Hezekiah, what have you done? And Hezekiah told him what he did. He said, because you've done that, all those treasures will be lost. It's interesting that that incident is put at the end of Hezekiah's life. Is it not a key to a man to whom the Lord wholly committed himself who was capable of failing? He failed. But his failure was not... Regrettably, the recording finished at this point. <laughs>